This Sunday for Memorial Day, I chose last weekend to change what I originally wanted to preach and to pick a text from the book of Revelation. It's the scripture of the hopeful end of history. But first, a word of caution. Revelation is probably the most misunderstood and misused book in the Bible. This vision was written by a poet, poet prophet, not constrained by the enlightenment expectation with literal, precise, analytical, and scientific language. Unfortunately, Revelation has been macerated by well-meaning literalists and charlatans carving up every verse into the right size pieces to fit into their puzzle based on, I think, what is a poor understanding of the meaning of the text and its use in relationship to science, biology, cosmology, and history. Such an analysis for the writer of this book would be Anathema, who was probably an exiled Christian prophet or priest from mainline Turkey who had been sent to the island of Patmos, 60 miles southwest. And as he writes this letter, this apocalyptic letter, which simply means apocalypse means uncovered, unveiling, as he writes it, he writes it as a word of hope to the seven churches in Turkey who were struggling with their own persecution at the hands of the mostly pagan population around them. Don't give up hope, the letter is saying. Bad things happen. Don't give up hope. Let us pray. O oh God of light and love and hope, Open our hearts to your word in Christ's name. Amen. From Revelation 22, verses 1 through 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants these things that must take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written 
in this scroll. The word of the Lord. This image of God's final recreation and restitution of his first creation given to us now, beginning with Genesis, is breathtakingly beautiful and hopeful. But it, but it only becomes even more beautiful when you understand what just preceded it from the 21st chapter of Revelation where it goes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It says, I saw a holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and then the home of God will be among mortals and he will dwell with us and we will be his peoples and God will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And in today's text, in this new world vision, there will be no more darkness even, no more suffering, no more night even, as the light of God will perpetually shine in this new world. And all the nations will be healed by the leaves of the tree, and the city will be as one with God and each other. Jesus will reign forever and ever. It's breathtakingly beautiful. Until then, however, we live in a world that often takes our breath away because of the powers of darkness. This vision that ends in a fairy tale ending shows us how far we are to go in this world as every day brings more tragic news of darkness. I always loved and appreciated that great John Lennon song, Imagine, Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine, imagine there's no country, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It's really exactly the same vision in Revelation. The difference is that John Lennon, I think, probably unrealistically had a hope that we could all come together and make that happen. Someday, not yet, 2,000 years later, and the Bible says, as hard as this is to hear, in this world, in this first world creation, not ever, at least fully, will this happen. As beautiful a vision as it is, we are far away from it, proven ironically when David Chapman, a religious zealot, incensed over Lennon's comment earlier that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ, shot him on the streets of New York. 
Yet even still, you see, we remain hopeful, yet realistic. Out of this vision before us that we, that we see that comes even now into our world in, in ways that we are not always aware. Tuesday morning at our staff meet, Tuesday morning at our staff meeting, when we read this passage together, we talked about it as our devotional. Everyone agreed this vision of hope in the face of darkness and evil is an incredible word of hope for all of us. And we talked about the darkness on Tuesday morning. We talked about the darkness of illness and death recently in our world. Those who we've lost here in this church, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what happened in Buffalo, New York, the persistence of the pandemic, agreeing that as good as our world is, it is also broken and sometimes dark. I wish I knew why, I don't. The Bible gives witness that in the time frame of history, darkness and light are always in battle with each other and will be until the end of time when God and Christ will come again to this new earth and this new heaven created with no more tears and no more suffering. I don't know why this is the world God created. Nobody does. Until then, what holds us together is the tension and leverage of the powers of good against the powers of evil. Love, hope, faith, joy, kindness, to balance out the powers of darkness, totalitarianism, tyranny, anarchy, violence, murder. It is a tenuous balance at best, but, but it is nevertheless a balance from time to time. This is why I asked Ada to put on the front of our bulletins the picture of what is known as the Peace Bridge in Derry, um, Ireland. It's called the Peace Bridge and it opened in 2011. It's 771 feet long and it is intended to represent the coming together of the most pro mostly Protestant Unionist camp that wanted to keep together the United Kingdom with the mostly Catholic nationalists who wanted independence and to unite with an independent Ireland. The warring violence went on for 30 years from 1969 to 1999, only finally coming to a truce on ironically Good Friday. However, it was a 400 year old battle the bridge denotes the tension between the two sides, and it's built into the architecture and engineering. Notice how the two pillars slope away from each other, pointing in two different directions, yet by some architectural magic, the tension from each pillar works. It's also a self-anchored bridge, which means that it converts the vertical loads into tension forces in the main cables, which are countered. I read this, I'm reading exactly as it was written. <laughs> I'm not an architect or an engineer. 
the tension forces in the main cables, which are countered by compressive forces in the towers and deck, these forces all working together in tension with each other to bring about a balance and a bridge. And I chose this picture because I wanted us to see that it is only in this balancing of the tensions of life whether it's architecture or engineering or biology or cosmology or music even, that we come to a state of order, rest, peace. There is no peace or rest without an equal power of resistance to chaos. That was on Tuesday morning then came Tuesday afternoon. And the earth-breaking news from Uvalde, Texas, leaving us feeling again that the power of evil had jarred loose our tenuously balanced tectonic plates, snapping our cables of support and whatever little bridge of hope and peace we had left, left to stand on. It seems we're losing this battle we're losing this battle to the powers of darkness. And I'm going to be fair with this. This is my opinion. To both sides of the aisle. To the gun lobbies, the climate change vaccine and fair election deniers. To the academic elite who throw you out if you don't abide by precise, politically correct language, and politicians who think a bigger leviathan will solve the problem. Some theologians say that this darkness comes from the devil. I don't buy it. Maybe there is a devil, but I don't think the devil has any power that we don't give it. Evil, yes. De evil, yes. And this evil exists, you see, but it doesn't have any power either unless we give it. Some theologians say that it's original sin. It's clear in the Adam and Eve story. I struggle with that, by the way. All of us, even the best of us, are infected with the darkness and evil that causes us to sin especially when we believe that we are good and righteous and most religious, are we most prone to the darkness of righteousness? When Jesus in Luke's Gospel on Palm Sunday made his way to Jerusalem, before he entered, he stood at the mountain across from the valley, looked at it, gazed at it, and began to weep. He wept only twice, once over Lazarus, his friend, and the other while looking at Jerusalem. He weeps because the best and most religious, the most righteous city of all Jerusalem is unable to understand their need for redemption and forgiveness. He weeps, crying, only if you knew the things that make for peace. I can't help but think of that vision 
from Revelation, when we finally do come to know those things that make for peace, when God will wipe every tear, even Jesus' tear, from our eyes. He could easily just be saying that now, in our present day, especially about our self-righteous religious entrapment. We've had plenty of it in our own mainline church, but with the recent news of the Southern Baptist cover-up and the, on the heels of the evangelical powers, big church powers of abuse and cheating, Hillsong and Mars Hill, We are the most prone, it seems. Would that the world, would that the United States, would that our preachers and politicians, our lobbyists and our voters, would that we would know the things that make for peace. And what is it Jesus knew? Like the peace bridge, he knew there is no peace without resistance to the powers of darkness and chaos. No peace without the tension between darkness and light. No peace without sacrifice and suffering for the sake of love. As he most clearly revealed when he gave himself over to that on the cross. That cross of tension between the powers of darkness and the powers of light there, right on the cross, in the living, breathing, soon dead Jesus. And our story says that in this world, it seems like evil won. But Sunday came and reminds us that it doesn't. Until then, we live in the power of love and forgiveness in the crucified Christ, that's what we preach and that's what we proclaim. That he died for our sakes, not to make the world perfect. God knows he didn't do a very good job if that's the case. But to reinvigorate us through the power of forgiveness and love, not to let the powers of guilt and the need for forgiveness stop us from becoming more Christ-like. That's what we are saved from, from the powers of darkness and guilt and sin. We're forgiven and set free to go to work. Growing up, I used to love to play war. I would, I would talk my parents into going down to the, to the Army-Navy store so I could buy those mildew smelling old Army outfits and the helmet and the canteen and the whole bit. And I, John and Jake Rudisil and I would play war from, from sun up to sun down. It seemed like for, for years, we'd climb trees. We were always the good guys. We always imagined the bad guys. We had our Thompson submachine guns. And growing up, I just thought that was the most romantic thing I've ever seen. But then I grew up a little and I started seeing the Vietnam War on television and I heard my father moan and groan when he watched it too. And I, I learned that, you know what, I'm not sure that I want to be that kind of warrior. So I was glad when I didn't get drafted because my year, the draft was done away with, 1953. 
But looking back, I'm sorry I didn't serve somewhere. Not in war, but serve somewhere. I would have learned something. I would have grown up sooner than I finally did. My father was in the war. He didn't talk about it much. He didn't want to. Apparently the trauma of it was too great to manage. He was in the Fifth Army in Italy, through Sicily up to Casino, where he was pinned down for five months. He was the sergeant of a platoon of 105 howitzer. And he would recount how he had to just sleep in frozen foxholes through most of the winter as airplanes would drop bombs on them. And he also recalled a little bit, but not much, about how his main job with that howitzer was to aim it up at Monte Cassino, the Benedictine monastery on top of the hill, because it was reported that Germans were using it for an outpost. That turned out not to be true. But all day and all night, my father's platoon, as did many others in the airplanes, would bomb that monastery to smithereens to nothing but rubble, which ironically only gave the Germans more of an opportunity to hide and use it as an outpost and even as a defensive position. He didn't talk about that much until he did, which was 50 years later. 50 years about the same time Saving Private Ryan came out. And he and my mother had planned a trip to Italy to go back through that path that he took, finally ending at Casino. That was a God thing. He was ready for the light to break into his darkness. And as they were making their way up the mountain in, in the tour bus, my mother told the tour director that Dad had been there and she asked him if he wanted to share the story and he took the microphone and my mother said she was astounded. He began to tell the story with all the details that he had never told before in that tour bus. And as he's telling it, she can see in him a light that is becoming more, more obvious and a darkness that is dissipating. And as they go through the casino, the, the Monte Casino tour, it's been rebuilt, they come out at the end at a bookstore, like all places, you know, there's a bookstore, they want you to buy stuff. And he finds a book that he wants to buy and he's standing there at the cash register and he has his book in his hand and he sees an older monk kind of facing away from him and he, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to buy the book and the monk doesn't move. And dad's like, sorry, I'd I like to buy the book and still doesn't turn. At that point, a younger monk comes up and says, I'm sorry, he's deaf. He lost his hearing in World War II because of all the bombing. Hard for me to tell the story. So dad says to him, would you tell him that I was one of the ones who did it? And that old monk came out and embraced him in a bear hug that washed away all of that guilt 
my father had carried for all the people he probably killed and for all of the friends that he lost. You see, even as we wait, the kingdom of God is breaking in on us if we have eyes to see and if we wait enough for it. Just look around. Come, Lord Jesus.